On June 12, 1865, 12-year-old John Joyce was strolling down the street toward his grandmother's house in Roxbury, Massachusetts, a community that would soon become a neighborhood on Boston's south side. John was mostly a happy boy, always eager to make his mother proud of him. His father had died a few years before, and his mother's work as a seamstress barely allowed her to earn enough money for both of them to live. John's older sister, Isabella, had gone to live with an aunt, but John had stayed with his mother. He sometimes heard her weeping at night, and the boy often felt his heart would break for her. Today, though, was a special day. Isabella was in Roxbury visiting their grandmother, and John was excited to see her. His friends would probably tease him if they knew how much he wanted to see Isabella or how badly he missed her, but John gave that little thought. He'd spent the morning attending class at the Dwight School, eagerly watching the clock, and as soon as the class bell tolled, he hurried for the door. His grandmother's house was at the corner of Newland and Concord Streets, a brick home that was divided into several flats. John and Isabella's grandmother lived on the first floor. Her children were grown, her husband had passed away years earlier, and she doted on her grandchildren. She was happy to have Isabella in the city for a visit and quickly prepared a small dinner so that John could eat before he returned to school for the afternoon session. Well, Isabella had been restless all morning. The weather was fine and she wanted to get out of the house. She was nearly as excited to see her younger brother as John was to see her, and she decided that they should take their dinner as a picnic. There were plenty of places in the neighborhood where they could spread a blanket and eat. When John arrived, she told him of her idea and he excitedly agreed to the plan. Their grandmother was not as excited about it. She asked the children to stay and eat lunch with her. She missed Isabella and John and barely had time to visit her with his studies at school and his chores at home. But Isabella wanted to go out into the fresh air and John agreed and told his sister, I'll show you some first rate woods. Their grandmother still had concerns. I don't want you to wander too far, she said. Johnny has classes again this afternoon. Isabella patted her on the back. Don't be afraid, Grandma. We'll be back in time for Johnny to go to school. The siblings had decided to go to nearby Mays Woods for their picnic. It was a recreation area, and this was in the days before there were many public parks, and it was located right there in Roxbury. It was about a mile and a half from their grandmother's house and a walk of less than a half an hour. Their grandmother had given them coins to use the streetcar if they decided to. She watched as they walked down the front stoop and started off down the street toward Mays Woods. For some reason, she had a feeling of dread in her chest. She started to call out to them and forbid them to leave, but why? She didn't know. She only knew that she felt something was wrong. And as it turned out, she would be right about that. Something was terribly wrong, and she never saw her two grandchildren alive again. Six days later, on June 18th, the bodies of Isabella and John Joyce were found in the woods. Not in Mays Woods, but in Busey Woods, four miles away. Isabella had been raped and mutilated. John was found a short distance away, beaten and stabbed more than a dozen times. Tragically, their murders were only solved by chance. The police never tracked down the monster who killed them. He only later confessed to the savage crime. He was a monster who attacked in the shadows of the forest, preying on children, the most innocent of victims. His crimes were horrific, and he literally tore his victims apart in a frenzy of rape and murder. He was unrepentant for his dark deeds, and while almost forgotten today, we decided he deserved a place in all our nightmares, 
so that we never forget the terrible acts that men are capable of committing. Although this is not the only reminder of the terror that he inflicted on the people of post-Civil War America, at least one soul connected to the murders has never found peace. That person, serving as a reminder, still walks in the dark and lonely woods where the lives of two children came to a tragic end. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to our latest season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This season has been a long time in the making, dating back to my childhood where some of these stories come from. We'll be taking you along with us to America's forests, farms, and fields with tales of horror and homicide, cults and curses, calamities and cannibalism, massacres and mysterious disappearances, and more magic, mayhem, sinners, and spirits than we've ever offered before. This is episode number 12 for the season, with a title almost too long to include in the show's description the most monstrous and inhuman criminal of modern times, or any time. But this episode has to come with some warnings. It's a story about a monster that preyed on children and horrific crimes that are not ripped from the headlines of modern times. Monsters like this one have been with us since the first settlers arrived on American shores. We often fool ourselves into believing that the good old days were actually good, but this is far from the truth. Monsters like this have always lived among us. They stalked the innocent in the days when children lived in fear for what might be in the new world's dark forests. They were among us before the Civil War claimed the lives of thousands of men and boys. They claimed the lives of the young and naive during the Gilded Age and at the dawn of the 20th century through the Depression and beyond. These monsters are not the stuff of fiction. They are and have always been very real, and they are with us still always looking for their next victim. We know this, as did our parents and their parents before them. The fear of strangers and their terrible deeds have been rooted in the minds of multiple generations of Americans. We created myths and legends of monstrous shapes, hoping to scare children so that they never strayed too far from the welcoming light of home. And yet blood was spilled. Children vanished, never to be seen again. They became faces on milk cartons and cautionary tales of what happened when children were left alone. We must keep our children safe, parents told themselves, but even the most watchful eyes weren't always enough. This is a horrific episode and not one for the faint of heart. It contains descriptions of murder, bloodshed, and violence against children, so it's better suited for an adult audience. Listener discretion is advised. Don't say we didn't warn you. John and Isabella Joyce were not the first victims of the Busey Woods killer. He was a multiple murderer or repeat killer, as such creatures were called in the days before the term serial killer was created. And he began his bloody career on October 30th, 1850. According to his later confession, this was the first time he tasted human blood and it would not be the last. He was walking by the home of a man named Stephen Mills in Derry, New Hampshire that day and looked in the window to see a little girl playing with dolls on the floor. There were no adults nearby. Possessed by what he later called the urge to procure a body for surgical purposes, he entered the house, snatched the girl, and took her off into the woods where he strangled her. 
When he stripped off her clothing, though, he discovered that one hip and part of her spine were deformed. Filled with revulsion, he abandoned his plan to examine her, the name he gave to his post-mortem rape and sexual mutilation, and buried the corpse under a rotten tree stump. Her remains would not be found until many, many years later, after her killer finally confessed to his crime. The monster may have killed again in the years that followed his initiation into violence, but if he did, he never admitted it. The next record of his crimes comes 12 years later when he struck again in the town of Strong, Maine, a few miles from Augusta. On Sunday morning, September 14, 1862, nine-year-old Laura Libby left her family's farm on her way to services at the local Methodist church. She made the mile-and-a-half walk each Sunday, weather permitting. Her parents, Isaac and Susan, never feared for her safety. Sunday school began each week at 10 a.m., followed by services until around 3 p.m. For her lunch, Laura carried two apples and a piece of gingerbread. She always walked straight home once the afternoon service came to an end. Until the Sunday when she didn't. The Libbies became concerned by 4 p.m. when Laura still had not come home. They rode into town looking for her. They checked with the minister, but he said that Laura had not come to church at all that day. They spoke to Laura's friends, but no one had seen her. With help, they searched late into the night, but there was no trace of the little girl. The next day, townspeople gathered to help with the search. They combed the fields, pastures, and woods between the Libby farm and the village. Late in the afternoon, searchers stumbled across a shallow grave about a half mile from the farm. When they removed the earth, they found the body of Laura Libby. Her dress had been removed and she had been raped. Her body and face were scratched and bruised and her throat was cut so deep that her head was nearly severed from her body. The entire community was stunned by the murder. A committee promptly offered a $1,000 reward for the capture of the killer. Suspicion fell on a farmhand for the Libbies, Lawrence Doyle, who lived and worked on the property. He'd behaved strangely on Sunday morning, some said, explicitly asking Isaac, if he planned to accompany his daughter to church. Doyle denied any involvement in the murder. He said that he had been taking care of sheep in a pasture far from the Libby house on Sunday morning, but with no one to vouch for his location, and largely because he was a stranger with no real ties to the village, he was arrested and held for trial. The evidence against him was incredibly circumstantial. The trial lasted just 25 hours and ended with a deadlocked jury. At his second trial, he was convicted and sentenced to hang. Doyle's attorney, E.F. Pillsbury, was thoroughly convinced of his client's innocence and convinced the governor to commute his sentence to life in prison. When Doyle died in prison six years later, Pillsbury continued the fight to exonerate him and find the real killer. He would later end up playing an important role in the case against the monster, who he believed actually killed Laura Libby. Well, the monster had vanished from Maine, but less than three years later, he killed again, this time in Massachusetts, taking the lives of Isabella and John Joyce. They had left their grandmother's home with a picnic lunch in nearby Mays Woods with a promise they would be back in time for John to attend his afternoon classes, but as we already know, they never returned. How the pair ended up in Busey's Woods, where their bodies were later discovered, remains a mystery to this day. Busey's Woods was about four miles away. The police later theorized that they had missed their streetcar stop and ended up at the end of the line. But what streetcar? The siblings had told their grandmother that they planned to walk. 
She'd given them money, so perhaps they had changed their mind and decided to take a streetcar to ensure that John was back on time. Perhaps, but if so, how did they miss their stop? They were both well acquainted with the area, and it seems unlikely they would have made this kind of mistake. Getting to Busey's Woods was not simply a matter of missing a stop. They had to take the Forest Hill car, the Dedham Turnpike route, all the way to the terminus. After that, they had to walk across the railroad, across the Jamaica Plain Road, over several hills and along a road to the woods. It would have had to have been their intention to go there in the first place, but why? Why pick such a distant spot when they had to be back so that John could return to school at 2 p.m.? Oh, we'll never know, but we do know they ended up there somehow, and the decision to travel to Busey's Woods turned out to be a fatal one. When the children did not return, their grandmother became frantic. She had trouble contacting their mother, who was out of town making dresses, so she turned to the police. The following morning, they began a search of Mays Woods, where the children had said they were going. The next day, Wednesday, Mrs. Joyce returned home and learned of her children's disappearance. She collapsed with worry and grief and likely from despair, since the search had offered no clues. Search parties scoured the forest, but there was no sign of Isabella and John. Then on June 18th, after nearly a week, two men, John Sawtell and J.F. Jameson, were hiking in Busey's woods and stumbled across the savaged remains of the two children. From the scene, it appeared that Isabella and her brother had been playing contentedly in the woods, collecting moss and fashioning wreaths out of oak leaves and twigs when they were unexpectedly attacked. The assailant, which the newspapers called a fiend in human shape, went after the girl first. Isabella was cut savagely with a knife. Her undergarments were torn away and she was violently raped. The coroner found 27 stab wounds in her torso and another 16 in her neck. The ground around her body was saturated with blood. She'd apparently put up a desperate fight, grabbing the long blade of the knife and trying to wrest it from the attacker's hands. The index finger of her right hand was completely severed and the rest of her fingers were mangled, bloody, and hanging loosely by bits of skin. Her clothing was soaked in her blood and clumps of grass and dirt had been roughly shoved in her mouth to try and stifle her cries. Apparently, poor John had stood paralyzed for a few moments in terror, watching the attack on his sister. When he finally turned to run, it was too late. He was found lying face down in the dirt, possibly having tripped over a tree root when he was attempting to escape. The killer had pounced on the boy's back and stabbed him several times. The wounds were so deep that in several instances, the blade had gone all the way through the young boy's body and pierced the earth beneath him. There were two houses within a few hundred yards of the murder scene, but the occupants were so used to hearing shouts, laughter, and yells from the nearby picnic area that, as the newspapers noted, they would not have paid any attention, even if they heard screams on this occasion. Some of the most hardened detectives on the force were so shaken by the gruesome scene in the woods, they failed to inform Mrs. Joyce of the murders until the following day. The newspapers reported that upon hearing the fate of her children, she swooned and has since reported to be a maniac. After a wake and a funeral, the children were both interred at Pine Grove Cemetery in Lynn. But their murders were not forgotten. The horrific savagery of the case provoked a tremendous response throughout the state. 
from church pulpits, ministers pointed to the murders as a sign that the country was descending into a deplorable state of vice, immorality, and crime. Rewards totaling more than $4,500, which would be more than $60,000 in today's money, were offered by local residents while an enormous manhunt was started for the inhuman wretch, as he was called, responsible for the outrage. Newspapers issued confident predictions that the perpetrator would be speedily arrested and subjected to summary vengeance, but he wouldn't. In the days, weeks, months, and years to follow, there were arrests, suspicions, and even confessions, but it would all eventually go cold. The search parties and well-meaning volunteers had destroyed whatever clues were present at the crime scene, even if the knowledge had existed at the time to collect them. There were no witnesses to the murders, of course, but one woman remembered seeing a frightening stranger with long black hair near Busey's woods that day, but that sighting led nowhere. On June 21st, the police arrested their first suspect. He was a painter named Thomas Ainsley, and he lived in the same rooming house where Mrs. Joyce and John lived at Six Cottage Place. Ainsley had quarreled often with Mrs. Joyce and threatened her and her two children on several occasions. Ainsley had an alibi, however, and was soon released. On July 9th, the second man was arrested. He was a bounty jumper from West Roxbury named John Stewart. During the Civil War, he had joined up with various army units, collected the incentive bounty that was offered and deserted, and then did it again. He joined nine different military units during the war. Stewart was alleged to have confessed his guilt to certain parties, and he was said to have returned home on the night of June 12th with cuts on his hands and his clothing covered with blood. Well, this got the attention of the police. When he finally was tracked down, because he had enlisted in the army again at Fort Independence, he denied all knowledge of the crime. He was able to prove that he was nowhere near Busey's Woods on June 12th, and he was released. It wasn't until March of the following year that the police had another viable suspect, a prisoner at the Charlestown State Prison named Charles Aaron Dodge, who went by the nickname of Scratch Gravel, came to the attention of Warden Gideon Haynes. He'd been arrested for burglary, but was boasting in prison that he was much more than a housebreaker. He suggested he had committed other crimes, notably the murders of the Joyce children. He liked young girls, he said, and when he wanted anything of them, he generally took it, employing force if necessary. He told another inmate that he had stabbed the Joyce boy in the back several times, that after having his way with the girl, put her out of the way. Warden Haynes notified detectives. This seemed like the man the police had been looking for. They planted a detective in his cell who listened to enough bragging from Scratch Gravel that they were able to try and charge him with murder. But the district attorney, B.W. Harris, wasn't interested. All the information that Scratch Gravel spewed to the undercover detective could have come straight from newspaper accounts. It turned out he was not even in Massachusetts at the time of the murders and that he'd embellished the news reports to try to make himself look more important in prison. It was another lead that had looked promising that failed to go anywhere. The police were all out of options. So when the skeleton of a man was discovered in Needham Woods just outside of Boston in December 1866, they quickly capitalized on this news. You see, lying next to the skull that was found in the woods was a mass of long black hair, just like the hair reported on the head of the frightening stranger that was seen near Busey's woods on the day of the murder. From this, the police suggested the skeleton belonged to the man who killed the Joyce children, 
He'd hid in the woods to elude capture, and it died there. While not everyone was satisfied with this conclusion, the case was essentially closed. Closed, but not solved. The details of the murders, which newspapers called one of the most horrific and revolting crimes which has ever occurred in New England, faded with time, but were not entirely forgotten. They were recalled with the same sense of terror that the murder of the Mills girl would have been if it had been widely reported, and with the same dread as that of the killing of Laura Libby. But nothing would have connected these three heinous New England crimes if not for the disappearance of 13-year-old Georgiana Lovering on October 25, 1872. What made Georgiana's case different than the others, though, was that it was no great mystery. There seemed to be little doubt about who was responsible for her rape and murder. It was her 64-year-old great-uncle, Franklin Evans. The events of the young girl's death were set in motion when Evans came to board with his elderly sister, Mrs. Deborah Day, at her farmhouse in Northwood, New Hampshire. Evans was a gaunt, grizzled old man with gray hair, a long gray beard, and dark, piercing eyes that gave him a sinister expression. He'd led a shiftless existence for most of his life, drifting about New England and Canada. A contemporary writer later said of him, he belonged to that numerous class of deadbeats that are always broke. Wandering the New England countryside, he survived by sponging off his adult children, borrowing small amounts of money from relatives and acquaintances, and blatantly seeking handouts from strangers. He'd married three times and had a son in Derry, New Hampshire, and a daughter in Lawrence, Massachusetts. What little honest money he made came from supplying a Manchester physician, Dr. F.W. Hansen, with healing roots and herbs that he had scrounged up in the forest. His vagabond life had given the old man a deep knowledge of the land, and his reputation for obtaining medicinal products of the woods and fields was unsurpassed, a newspaper later noted. Even in this line of work, though, Evans could not keep from betraying his lazy and dishonest nature. Claiming that he himself was a botanical physician, he peddled worthless cures to rural families. He also passed himself off as an itinerant preacher. Taking advantage of the religious fervor of the era, he joined the Second Advent Society, declaring that he was a minister of the gospel and managed to raise a little money from his brethren to support himself while on his sacred mission. The religious society naturally took offense, however, when he was arrested for consorting with prostitutes. And this incident wasn't his only brush with the law. At various times, he was charged with petty theft, attempting to pass crudely forged $10 bills, and most seriously, scheming to defraud the Travelers Insurance Company of Boston for $1,500. If these crimes were the worst of his transgressions, Evans would have been nothing more than a small-time scoundrel, a snake oil salesman, and a con artist. But as the country would eventually learn, much to its horror, he was something far worse. A creature so depraved that to the people of his time, his crime seemed to be the work of a supernatural evil. Too horrible, as one newspaper stated, for anything in human form to have perpetrated. There were four people living at the Day Farm when Evans showed up there in June 1872. Mrs. Day and her husband, Sylvester, their widowed daughter, Susan Lovering, and Susan's daughter, Georgiana. This poor young woman, Evans' grandniece, immediately became the object of the depraved old man's lust. Within days of his arrival, he began trying to seduce the girl. When she repulsed his advances, he concocted a diabolical scheme. 
It was, as one account stated, a deeply laid plan designed for no other purpose than to lure his victim into his lecherous grasp. Near the Day farmhouse was a deep forest, the largest tract of woodland in the county, covering an area of more than 2,000 acres. Late on Monday, October 21st, after being away from the farm most of the day, Evans returned to his sister's home, explaining he had been off in the forest setting snares for partridges. The following morning, he invited his niece to accompany him into the woods to see if he'd caught anything. For reasons unknown, she agreed to go. The traps turned out to be empty, but he showed Georgiana how they worked. They were little hoops concealed inside the hedges, designed to snag birds by the throat as they scrambled through the foliage. Georgiana was intrigued by the snares, never suspecting that their purpose was actually to trap her. Early Friday morning, October 25th, Evans asked the young woman for a favor. He'd agreed to take care of some chores for a neighbor, a farmer named Daniel Hill, and would be gone all day. He asked Georgiana if she would mind going into the woods and checking the partridge traps for him. Surely, he told her, they must have caught something by now. She was reluctant at first, but allowed herself to be persuaded. Evans left soon afterward, presumably for the hill farm, several miles away. A short time after that, Georgiana stuck a comb into her thick brown hair to hold it into place, threw on a shawl, and walked into the forest. It was the last time she was ever seen alive. When Georgiana failed to return by lunchtime, her grandfather went to look for her. Unable to find any sign of her, Sylvester came back home and told her mother, Susan, that the girl was missing. She immediately became alarmed. The two of them hurried back into the woods as they frantically made their way along the forest paths, shouting the girl's name. They spotted her shawl on a tree branch. A short distance away, they discovered a comb, broken in half with strands of her hair still tangled in its teeth. The earth around it had been trampled with footprints, one by a man's boots and the other by a girl's shoes. Evidence Sylvester Day would later testify of a squabble. Terrified now, Sylvester and his daughter went deeper into the woods but found no other signs of the missing girl. The two of them ran home, alerting the neighbors as they went. All day on both Saturday and Sunday, hundreds of people scoured the woods but found nothing. By then, however, suspicion had fallen on Franklin Evans. The authorities checked with Daniel Hill and found that Evan's story didn't hold up. He had not asked him for help with chores that day. In fact, Hill said he hadn't seen him for more than a week. Another witness, a young man named James Pender, testified that he'd seen Evans enter the forest around 8.30 on Friday morning, just a half hour before Georgiana had disappeared into those same woods. County Sheriff Henry Drew grilled Evans, but the old man could offer no convincing account of his whereabouts on the day that his grandniece went missing. He was promptly taken into custody. Inside Evans' pockets, Drew later stated he found a wallet, money, obscene books, a bottle of liquor, and a common bone-handled knife with two blades, blood-stained and keen as a razor. Even after he was arrested, Evans initially denied knowing anything about what happened to Georgiana. But when Drew assured him that, quote, no harm would come to him if he confessed, Evans changed his story. Georgiana, he insisted, was alive and well. He had arranged to have her carried away by a man from Kingston, a farmer named Webster who wanted her for his bride and was willing to pay for her. Although Sheriff Drew was skeptical, he immediately started for Kingston, where he quickly confirmed the story was what he called a depraved falsehood. Back at the jailhouse, he continued to badger Evans, 
plying him with liquor and even telling him they would help him escape to Canada if he told him the truth. Finally, on October 31st, six days after the girl's disappearance, the old man gave in. Drew leaned in close to him as he spoke. In the hearing of no persons but us two and the great being above, I ask you this question. Is the body of the girl cold in death? Evans told the sheriff he would accompany him to the place where the body had been left. Even though it was close to midnight on All Hallows' Eve, they left for the woods. Through the dark forest, they silently made their way along over rocks and logs and along narrow trails. Then in a clearing at one of the deepest points in the woods, Evans took the sheriff and an assembled group of deputies to a spot underneath the roots of an upturned tree. He pointed a shaking figure at a pile of dried leaves and quietly murmured, There she is. The sheriff gently brushed away the leaves, and by the dim light of his lantern, he saw the pale face and the bloody, naked body of Georgiana Lovering. Two townsmen were at the scene, Eben Parsley and Alonzo Tuttle, and they had brought the local physician, Dr. Caleb Hansen, with them. Gasping in shock at the body of the savage girl, Parsley couldn't help but speak. He demanded of Evans, How did you come to do such a bloody deed? The old man shrugged as he replied, I suppose the evil one got the upper hand of me. Dr. Hansen bit down to examine the dead girl. A glance at her face with its bulging eyes, swollen and protruding tongue, and dark bruises at her throat told him that she had been strangled. Her body had been hideously mutilated. Evans later confessed that he'd raped her corpse and then had torn open her belly with his bone-handled knife to get to her uterus. He had also excised her vulva, which he carried away with him and hid under a rock. When a stunned Sheriff Drew asked him why he had committed such butchery, the old man calmly replied that he did it to gain some knowledge of the human system that might be of use to me as a doctor. As he was dragging the man back to jail, Drew had one more question for him. What did you set those snares for, Frank? Evans answered with a self-satisfied smirk. I set them to catch the girl. And I catched her. Franklin Evans's trial opened in the town of Exeter, New Hampshire on February 3rd, 1873, but it was a perfunctory affair. The outcome was a foregone conclusion to everyone involved, including the defendant. Only one dramatic moment occurred during its three-day duration. Early on the morning of Tuesday, February 5th, while his guard was off fetching him a glass of water, Evans took one of his suspenders, tied it around his neck, and attached the other end to a clothes hook on the wall of his cell and tried to hang himself. Just then, the newspapers reported the guard returned, seized Evans, and disengaged him from the hook. Most observers believe that the man's half-hearted suicide attempt was nothing more than a ploy to set up an insanity defense. Now, if that was the case, the effort failed. The jury was out only 45 minutes. He was convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to hang on February 17, 1874. For his unnameable and incredible crimes, he will be swung like a dog, celebrated one local newspaper, which went on to recommend that those wishing to attend the hanging should make early application in order to secure reserved spots, which will be scarce. Accompanied by the High Sheriff of Rockingham County, J.W. Odlin, Evans was transported by train to the state prison at Concord. A crowd of more than 800 people gathered at the station to get a glimpse of him. One newspaper stated they were excited to a remarkable pitch of feeling. 
This frenzied fascination was not entirely based on Evans' notoriety as the killer of Georgiana Lovering. By then, he had confessed to other crimes as well, atrocities that marked him as one of the most appalling killers of the era. He was known to have been in Derry at the time the Mills girl was kidnapped and reportedly had been a suspect. Through his connections to the Adventists, it was determined that he had been in Boston when the Joyce murders took place. E.F. Pillsbury, attorney of Lawrence Doyle, who had been convicted of the Laura Libby murder, believed that he had evidence that proved that Evans was her killer. A newspaper from Boston sent out a commissioner to get to the bottom of the allegations and Evans' confessions and reported on what he learned. Sheriff Drew had pressed Evans on his whereabout during the years before Georgiana's murder. Evans said he'd spent quite a lot of time in Derry, and when questioned about the Mills kidnapping, he admitted that he had taken the child, but he said her body would never be found. Well, people in Derry believed that Evans was telling the truth. They remembered him, and they had disliked him. He was a man of low character, and he was familiar with the Mills house. There was a rumor that went around that claimed that he sold the skeleton of a child to a physician in Lawrence, Massachusetts, two years after the kidnapping. But that turned out to only be a rumor. Sheriff Drew traced Evans' movements to Rhode Island, then to Roxbury, Massachusetts, linking him to the Joyce murders. Evans admitted to being in Roxbury and knew more about the case than Drew did. Evans, while plant collecting for herbalists, was constantly walking in the woods around Boston. He argued back and forth with Drew about details of the case, eventually admitting to information about stab wounds and locations of the bodies that were unknown to anyone except for the police. And the killer, of course. The reporter who investigated Evans' confessions managed to find a young Boston woman who had been visiting friends in Roxbury in June 1865. She was surprised in the woods by the appearance of a wild, haggard-looking man of horrible aspect. When the man came nearer, she screamed at the very top of her voice, she said. The reporter showed her a picture of Evans, along with several others, and even though it had been seven years since the incident had occurred, she immediately, unhesitatingly, identified as the portrait of the man who had frightened her, the reporter wrote. This was enough for investigators. Evans' bits of information and a witness who placed him at the scene were enough for officials to accept he had killed the Joyce siblings. Headlines were soon appearing around the country with the news that the murders had finally been solved. The Libby murder was harder to pin on Evans, though. At one point, Evans asked Drew if there had been anyone from Maine after him. Drew asked what part of Maine, and Evans replied, somewhere near Augusta. He said that he knew of a little girl there in 1861 or 62. His throat had been cut. When he was told that no one from Maine was investigating him, he replied, well, I won't say another word about it then. Beyond the hints he offered Sheriff Drew, he would not admit to killing Laura Libby. But attorney Pillsbury was convinced that Evans had done it. He claimed that Evans had preached in Augusta and that the Libbies were Adventists who had entertained Evans in their home. This was verified by a witness who knew the Libby family. Pillsbury also said that there were aspects of the crime not reported by newspapers that implicated Evans. We'll never know for sure if Evans committed the Libby murder, but the method and circumstances certainly fit his pattern of crime. Could Pillsbury have been using Evans as a scapegoat to clear his client of the crime? It's possible, but for what reason? An obsession with the case? Lawrence Dole had been dead for several years by the time Evans was arrested. Pillsbury simply wanted justice for him. He believed that Doyle had been innocent of the crime just as strongly as he believed that Evans was guilty. Well, Franklin Evans spent the last night of his life quietly, falling asleep around midnight. 
Around 5.30 a.m., he ate a hearty breakfast and drank a cup of tea. When a reporter asked him if he had any last-minute statements to make, he replied, I've confessed everything. If the people don't believe it, I can't help it. A large, excited crowd gathered outside the prison walls as the hour of the execution drew near. At 10.50 a.m., they were admitted into the building where the gallows had been set up in the corridor between the guard room and the cells. Within minutes, every available space was packed with spectators, some of them standing on the stairways leading up to the cells, others crowding around the scaffold. At 11 a.m., Evans, dressed in a black suit, was led through the crowd by the prison warden. He climbed the scaffold on his own and muttered something under his breath as his arms and legs were tied. He appeared quite calm and possessed, a newspaper wrote, although the people who were standing closest to the gallows later reported that his knees were trembling. The noose was adjusted around his neck and a black hood was pulled over his head. After reading the death warrant, Sheriff Odlin placed his foot on the spring that controlled the drop, and at exactly 11.06 a.m. on Tuesday, February 17, 1874, the elderly serial killer was, to quote the papers, launched into eternity. Sort of. His neck didn't break. He dangled in the air, slowly strangling for nearly 20 minutes before his heart stopped beating and the attending physician declared him dead. After the execution, Evans' official written confession was released to the press. In it, he detailed the murder of Georgiana Loverlane, but attempted to mitigate the crime by describing the members of the household as intemperate and immoral. His sister's husband, Sylvester, was drunk and abusive. His niece, Susan, was a woman of loose morals, and even 13-year-old Georgiana was sometimes drunk and lewd, talking of her shameful intercourse with three young men. Evans claimed that he himself had consensual sex with Georgiana, and she threatened to expose him. He stated that he was completely under the young girl's power, and that's why he decided to kill her. Evans also confessed to murdering the Mills child. He heard moaning from inside the house, he said climbed in the window and found her sitting on the floor, apparently very sick. He concluded that she would not live until morning and he wanted the body to examine for surgical purposes. So he took her to the woods and strangled her. He had stopped the examination when he found out that she had a deformed hip and spine and buried the body in the woods under a tree stump, a spot he was never able to find again. These were the only murders to which he confessed in print. He admitted to theft, counterfeiting, and attempted insurance fraud, but despite what he told Sheriff Drew, other investigators, and reporters, he now said he did not commit the other murders, the Libby and Joyce killings, that he had earlier taken credit for. Was he telling the truth, or rather, which version of his story was the truth? Evans' confession had been dictated to the warden and the chaplain of the prison. They wrote it down and read it back to him, and he accepted it as correct and signed it. Later, though, the two officials admitted to some creative editing. They explained that much of what Evans had said to them was too gross and indelicate to be written or read, and they cut it out. Thanks to this, we will likely never know the extent of Franklin Evans's crimes. Whether he committed only the two murders to which he confessed in his final statement, or was the killer of several others, as so many believed then and now, he was a monster. Ironically, since he claimed that his murders were committed so that he could gain anatomical knowledge to aid him as a doctor, his corpse was donated to the Dartmouth Medical College so that it could be dissected by the students there. His skeleton still resides in the college's anatomical museum after all these years. 
The execution of Franklin Evans was not quite the end of our story. A few years after Evans went to the gallows, a ghost story came to be connected to the murders of the children in Busey's woods. The slayings had a tremendous effect on the local community. As one local resident wrote in 1878, of the many dark deeds of blood which have disgraced this age, few have been fraught with more harrowing details than the one enacted right here. The newspapers repeatedly recalled the details of the crime for their readers. From their murders to the accidental discovery of their corpses by hikers, corpses so badly mutilated that their condition sickened war-hardened Civil War veterans who saw the body. The children were brought back to Lynn for burial. The funerals became the scene of public sorrow, especially since they occurred just two months after the assassination of President Lincoln. Rewards were offered by the authorities and seven suspects were interrogated and released, but to no avail. The only good to come out of the tragedy was that the police finally started a patrol for Busey's Woods. Then, 13 years later, the story took another bizarre turn. The details of our area's terrible atrocity and barbarity fueled a feeling of unprecedented horror, wrote an author of a book about the murders, published in Boston in 1878. He asked how such a terrible crime could have been committed on the outskirts of one of America's most modern cities. The author titled his book with four simple words. Was it a ghost? The author was Henry Johnson Brent, founder and editor of the New York City magazine Knickerbocker, which was widely enjoyed from 1833 through the Civil War. In June 1865, he happened to be staying with friends who lived within a few hundred yards of the murder site. They told him the terrible story of what had occurred in Busey's Woods, and he began his own investigation into the events. His plan was to publish a small book that would hopefully draw new attention to the murders, which by then had gone unsolved for more than a decade. Brent himself had immediately become a suspect in the case when a boy told police he had often seen a man of Brent's description in Busey's Woods with a knife and a gun. Fortunately for Brent, he was an artist whose palette knife and target shooting practice was known in the neighborhood. He was also acquainted with members of the police force. The police quickly dismissed him as a suspect. By the end of June 1865, his search for the killer had grown cold. A week or so later, in a bizarre personal twist, Brent saw the ghost of a man on the far side of his host's property between Busey and Motley Woods. Brent truly felt that the event was something beyond his ability to reconcile by the usual rules of explanation. A short time later, returned to the scene, going to the spot where Isabella Joyce had been murdered, hoping to see the ghost again. He began to believe that it might be the murdered children's father, returned from the grave to seek justice. He took his story to a perplexed police chief who urged him to publish it. Brent details his encounter with the spirit in chapter 10 of his book. He reported that he saw the specter very clearly, but had no elaborate appearance. It looked dark gray from head to foot. It had arms, legs, and a head, but little discernible shape. Brent published his book long after interest had died in the case. Many locals never believed Franklin Evans' claim that he killed the Joyce children, despite the similarities to his other crimes. Brent hoped that his book would stir up a renewed investigation and would goad the murderer, if he was still alive, into remorse and confession. He wasn't convinced that Evans killed the children either, though. He believed that someone they knew killed them. The change of the picnic from May's Woods, where the children told their grandmother they were going, to the more secluded Busey's Woods caused him to suspect that the children were accompanied by someone they knew. 
The coins their grandmother had given the children to ride the streetcar with were found lying near Isabella's body. Someone else, Brent believed, had paid their fare. But Brent's book was not simply a true crime story. The ghost story is the centerpiece of the book, and rightly so, given the title. It alternated between a detailed description of the double murder and an argument for the existence of ghosts. He even noted the results of seances that had recently occurred in which letters were read that were alleged to be written by the murder girl and her deceased father. A communication purportedly from John was also circulated. Though unacquainted with spiritualism, Brent felt that he had to include these reports with his ghostly account. He had a terrible feeling of guilt over the fact that he had been in Busey's Woods painting and target shooting on the day the murders took place, and yet had seen nothing. Unfortunately, his unorthodox look at the murders, weaving together the crime and the ghost stories, drew scorn from many reviewers and was never taken seriously. Who knows what might have happened if it had been? Did Franklin Evans kill the Joyce children too, or could Brent have been right that they were killed by someone they knew? We'll never know, but I have to say that I personally think Evans likely killed them all. And even if he didn't, he certainly deserved to hang for the crimes he did admit to. As one newspaper reported, his crimes were too horrible for anything in human form to have perpetrated. Words that still ring true, even nearly 160 years later. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. We're good to go if you are. Yeah, I'm ready, man. Yeah, whenever you are. I'm good. Okay. All right. Um, and yeah, if this, one of these dogs might bark and it will scare the shit out of me, but I'll, <laughs> I'll uh, yeah, do what I do. I'll deal with it when we need to. So. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. And sometimes the very dark side of American <laughs> history. We are now in season six of the podcast. Woods and fields, dark and wicked. I'm going to be as funny as I can at the beginning of this because there's nothing funny about this story. That's actually a real so maybe before and my after. Jokes. Yes. Oh, I should have front loaded my jokes. They're just spread out. Oh, um, no. But no, I'm kidding. Yeah. I'm your co-host, Cody Beck. And uh, with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, and the founder of American Hauntings, Troy Taylor. Hey. Dude, you're right. You're totally right, though. Uh, I know this, is one this one those. really, I mean, I knew it was, I knew it was dark. I mean, I knew this story. I've written about this story before. I knew it was dark already, but. And as I started working on it, I'm like, Oh boy, wow. <laughs> oh, man, <sighs> maybe, I mean, I, I really put a long uh, disclaimer at the you beginning did. of this, as you may have noticed yep. that this is a warning for sensitive ears. So. Yeah. The structure, it's almost like the structure. Of wait, the wait, the real question is, did you cry? 
This time, no. Okay, just um, checking. However, but uh, I will. For those you- of you who don't know, that was a big topic of discussion for the um, the uh, Marion Marian Parker, Parker well, uh, podcast. The, the thing was, where yeah. Troy, so where I'm recording right now at the Buddy's house, but this is where I did the outline for Marion Parker, and mm. so and I did it at the same spot, and so he came in for Marion Parker, <laughs> and he goes, "Are you crying?" And I was like, "Well, you don't." <laughs> don't even you just don't understand yeah but this one i didn't um i think that was also during uh more emotional times of life yes that's true that is true um but but damn dude i didn't i didn't like it Um, uh this one you know it's really dark yeah but we'll 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 this is this is like the darkest season um i guess you probably noticed that but yeah and there's more to come i mean this is a dark and this is just gonna be a dark season i can't help it that's just how it turned out so yeah well i mean we put yeah. dark and wicked literally in the titles well that is true good, good we, i feel like we got to oh. deliver yeah that's true yeah it's a good point but before we make you all even more upset um what do you you got some cool stuff coming up man what's, i do what's going i on? do and i will tell everyone that uh you know not to to spoil the you know the drama here but uh-huh. we are recording this before the conference because we knew we oh, would right. not have time as we got closer to the conference for an episode that was coming out three days after the conference. So here we are, we're doing it now. So uh, we we decided not to pretend like, you know, oh, 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 what a great time that was. Remember that crazy thing? For all we know, a tornado will come and wipe out the entire building that we're in and we'll never have another episode after this. Right. But Cody will have this one scheduled to go up. So if this is the last time that you hear us, um, thank you for listening to the podcast, um, just in case. I'm just, you know, I mean, who knows what might happen? So Disclaimer. Anyway. tomorrow, but yes, we do have I do have stuff coming up. So if you're hearing this on the 28th, yesterday, the 27th, if you're not going to be at the conference, uh, you uh, might have seen that my new book, One Day in the Valley of the Kings, uh, became available for order. And that is about Howard Carter and Lord Carnarvon and the curse of Tutankhamun. And so this was like, Uh, 11-year-old Troy getting ready to write his Indiana Jones book. Uh, That is as close as we're going to get to that, and that is what this is. So uh, if you are interested in the book, you can get it at AmericanHauntings.net. Don't forget the podcast discount code, uh, which you can use just by typing in the word podcast when you check out. Um, Also, we do have, I'm I'm talking about right now, uh, we're, we're getting ready. By the time you hear this, we will be in the process of getting our fall events posted. But just as a reminder, we do have um, some really good summer stuff when people are off work on vacation, whatever. Um, If you're going to be in the Alton area, we invite you to join us for either one of the six remaining River Road tours that we have or the dinner events that we have um, coming up in order July and August. uh, An evening with the Limp family, um, St. Louis, if you like that episode of the podcast. A little different. Um, evening with Wyatt Earp and the Spirits uh-huh. of Tombstone, which is one year. Hey, did I you? I told you the story about that one, right? Where all the like Western um, reenactors showed up. No, For the first time I did the Wyatt Earp thing. No, I had like I had like a fifteen or twenty people who came in costume. No shit. Everything. It was a blast. They, they did were everything. so much fun. They did the joke that I always make like about doing maybe like coming to one of those like dressed in character and shit. <laughs> yeah, they were awesome. all that's dressed. Awesome. I mean, cowboys, the ladies had on long dresses. And oh, everything. That's it was awesome. really cool. And they were they were a blast. They were I, a lot of fun. I bet. So, but you're not required to do that if you just want to come sure. and enjoy it. So uh, we also have an evening of Hell Hath No Fury. 
uh, Evening with Lizzie Borden, and An Evening of American Axe Murders, which we're not going to commit them. We're going to talk about them and the haunted and ghost Never mind. connected to them. I know, right? You're you're out. Well, my out. Fund, so, yeah. Anyway, if you're interested in the River Road Tours or any of those events, uh, dinnerandspirits.com is where you can find all that stuff. And hopefully we'll see you this summer. So awesome. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, we're not, yeah, we're not going to pretend that we did the conference already. <laughs> Would have been funny. But um, uh, yeah, so with the conference, you know, two years ago, I ended up walking to the Robert Wadlow statue very early in the morning on Saturday. That was 2019, correct? Or yeah, I guess a couple of years ago. And well, then, yeah, because I mean, you know, technically two years it. ago since there's a lost year in there. Somewhere. Right, right. And then I think was it last year? I did a third eye blind karaoke at like 1 a.m. Oh, so yeah. Like, you don't really know that. what to expect. This no, year. that's true. You never know. But I'm really, yeah, I'm excited. It'll be fun, though. It'll be I'm fun. I'm looking forward to it. Um, also, I don't know if I mentioned this or not, but I had a lot of people reach out uh, through the email address, AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com uh, with condolences after my father passed. Yeah. Um, and that was really, that was just really, really nice. I didn't know what to say to people. Even I know, it's hard. Even when they um, messaged me, you know, text me, call me, whatever. But I just want to say thank you. I read them all. It really meant a lot. Um, and and I, I really just appreciated it and wanted to get that on. Well, record. and unfortunately, death is stalking the podcast and friends of the podcast because our friend April Slaughter's mother just yeah. passed away this at the end of last week. So um, we've had to rearrange some things for her for the conference, but we're still going to make it work. But um, yeah, her mom passed away um, late last week, uh, early Friday morning, and which is very sad uh, because I'm close with her family and uh, love her mom. And um, so, yeah, so it's been a it's been a lot lately, you know, it has. Yeah, yeah. April, you're in our you're in our thoughts. We'll miss you this year. Um, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Well, moving on to some some happier thoughts. Uh, we do have a yeah. fun listener review. Um, this is from Ray Hawks and it's just titled perfect. <laughs> it's an oh man. <laughs> it says a uh, big daddy energy meets millennial sardonic humor. Love you guys. <laughs> I think that's a fun way to describe us. So yeah, I, I like that. Um, and that's fun. So thank you so much for the reviews. They really help people find our show and they just inflate our egos. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Okay. Or don't <laughs> sometimes or, they don't. Sometimes they take the air out. They yeah. do not inflate our egos. Yes. Um, so you know okay so are you ready to dive in sure yeah 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 all right um okay um june 12th 1865 my sister's birthday not necessarily the same year but pretty close um, <laughs> I'm sure she'll appreciate that yes she will. uh john joyce 12 is um he's happy to be he's a young kid happy to be reunited with his older sister isabella they go meet up at their grandma's. They decide to go play in the woods. She's kind of like, hey, you know, don't do this. Um, they're like, hey, you know, it'll be fine. And they're going to go off into May's woods. They go missing. They're found in a different uh, different woods a few miles away. And yeah, and four miles in those days, a lot further than four miles these days. Sure, and sure. they weren't found for almost a week. Yeah. And so. even I mean, even walking four miles would take you yeah. a long, long time. Right. Um, and we'll get to kind of, you know, how they maybe got from one place to another. But this is some of the most brutal shit I think we've talked about. Um, yeah, it's pretty well. The fact that it's for Marion Parker, but it's pretty bad. Right. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I think it's it, it seems to me like people I'm not going to go into all the details, but it seems I think of I kind of like bucket people where there's people that brutalize people. There's people that 
sexually assault people, do both adults or children. And this is like one of those ones where it's bam, bam, bam. Yeah. The worst yeah. of the worst. Yeah. This guy is literally, I call him in several places during the, the monologue. I called him a monster. And yeah. I don't think that that is, I don't think that that is a, a, the wrong Hyperbolic. term to use for this guy. Not at all. Yeah. I, um, I don't think of that at all. You know, it always reminds me about, you know, who the monsters really are. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever seen, I mean, not that it's, it's doesn't hold up really great, but if you ever see that movie Nightbreed, uh, which is about mm. monsters, mm. Uh, but the real monsters are the people. So and I think that, you know, there was a series on, speaking of that, uh, on a tangent already, we just started. Yeah, it's fine. There was a series on Hulu, it's still on there, called Monsterland. I don't know if you've seen it or not, but I if you haven't, so. I recommend it. Yeah. Um, but the, the mm. monsters are not what you expect in sure. this show. Well, that, and, that was the uh, whole kind of Scooby-Doo yeah. premise, right? Like, it is, it pretty much yeah. is. It's always an old white guy. <laughs> yeah. well, you, also you yeah. haven't uh i don't think you've ever been to my apartment but i do have some artwork um that i partially worked with and it has like kind of like a skull in the background it's all faded and then i wrote over it all monsters are human which i don't necessarily agree with but yeah. you, get the, you get the gist of what yeah. i'm talking about it kind of goes along with the oscar wilde hell is empty all the devils are here sure know? yeah so. um something i okay so uh, something i want to talk to you about with this one is uh i feel like and i'm guessing this is lack of information or, or time or something but we i feel like we didn't really dive into the background of this killer or the maybe the possible motivations or, or thoughts about that i was wondering why it kind of seemed that we don't have that sort of information well not at first uh, i didn't in fact i didn't even use his name for quite some time yeah. until his niece you know turned up missing mm -hmm. and murdered um Motivation wise, I'm not sure that we'll ever know. And that's the other problem is we know very little about this guy's history. Um, there just isn't much. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't have a lot of history on him because the time period, there just wasn't really anything like that kept. I mean, the sure. first murder that he was eventually tracked to was in 1850. Right. So we don't know where this guy came from. We have a rough idea of how old he was after they ended up, you know, catching him. And, you know, he was around 70 years old, but there is no history here. Or what little we know is that he spent time in this place or that place. You know, he worked by going out in the woods and gathering roots and herbs for doctors and called himself a doctor and made, you know, snake oil for people. You know, it's so it's there's a lot of open questions about this guy. And even, even down to, we don't know for an absolute fact how many people he killed because he kept changing his story, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but, but based on the murders themselves, and I honestly believe there are others. There have to be. There haven't been found because you don't go from 1850 to 1862 between committing the almost exact same murder. Even if the first one was in 1850, even if the little girl that he stole out of the house, even if that was his first one, and, you know, he started to follow through with what he would later do, but stopped because it turned out that she was, you know, partially, uh, you know, that's the disabled girl, yeah. or yeah, deformed in some way. Mm -hmm. You don't wait 12 years to do it again. No, hell no. Um, I, don't, I don't believe that that's the case, but you got to remember that we're talking about a time period in American history where records aren't that great. Mm -hmm. um, there isn't a lot of, there is no, not much of a legal system, especially out 
once you kind of get away from any large towns. And you'll notice that, I mean, Boston, he was close to Boston, but still not Boston at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it wasn't it wasn't Boston then. But the other ones were very tiny little towns in the middle of nowhere, pretty much out in the woods, right. you know. And so that was where he gravitated. And so the fact that there's no probably no sheriff, there's no authorities, really. You know, the people who went out and looked for, you know, Lura Libby and and they went out and looked for, but they didn't know where to look. And there was no real law enforcement to turn to. It's kind of like um, in our in our Patreon series of the Moonlight Murder. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a murder that happens out on a farm and the closest, you know, closest police are miles and miles away, you know, an hour by horseback. There's no one close by. There's no one to turn to when you need that kind of help. Right. You know, so I think that's what was happening here is you had a situation where there's no good records kept. Mm-hmm. So there had to have been other murders. I, I, I honestly believe that. Yeah. And I'm sure, it, you know, he seems to have kind of a, an MO and a way that he works and everything. Um, and I'm curious, did you, uh, and I don't know how long it would have been since you have, but did you ever look into other, other you know, missing young women by? Yeah. I mean, things like not, that's not as hard as I probably could. Now mm-hmm. I probably could devote a lot of time to this and who knows at some point I might, because this is an interesting story. And yeah. I think that it could be turned into uh, something much longer than it has been because I think there is more to this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but from what I know right now, I haven't found anything else, but again, I I'm convinced it's out there. Right. Really well, it's, it's one of those things too, where he, you know, they even brought people to his attention. Like, Hey, did you do this murder? Did you do this murder? And kept changing the story and this and that. And it is, it's one of those cliche, like Batman things, like some men just want to watch the world burn sort of thing. Like he didn't, he wasn't claiming credit at the end, you know, and didn't seem to like, it just, it's just the worst of everything. Like just no point and purpose and the most brutal shit you can. Well, it was, yeah. I mean, here was a guy who cares literally only cares about his own, you know, what he's getting out of it Mm -hmm. and with no thought to ramifications to the damage that's done Really, no, because he I, that's, again, why I think there were other murders, because he doesn't seem to even care if he's going to get caught. There's no like self-preservation. No, not there. really, because he just figures, well, nobody's going to bother anyway. That's you know, so I mean, wild. it's just crazy. I'm well, obviously, I mean, I think the guy is crazy. Sure. I mean, he be. didn't um, I mean, they didn't find him insane because and I think that you see that a lot more. I, I see it working on you know, 19th century stuff a lot when people would try in the latter half of the 1800s would try to claim the insanity defense. Um, I think a lot of times that jurors would refuse to consider it because they wanted to make sure that the person was punished. Sure. When everybody had, you know, you, if you were guilty, you were going to hang period. Mm -hmm. And so they made sure that people were guilty, whether they were crazy or not, they didn't want them loose on the streets somewhere. Right. I, I honestly have seen that a, a lot. And I think that's exactly what happened in this case. Yeah. And I mean, it kind of seems like maybe a half ass attempt to for him to hang himself or whatever and, and see if he can get that insanity plea or whatever. But um, but I don't know. I never I never tried any of that. But uh, <laughs> I, I was a little confused about the police eventually find the body of a man and they think he might be the killer. What, because of the hair? Is there more to that? And they just want to close the case. Yeah. I I think it was, it was an excuse. I mean, there was one woman who said she thought she saw 
you know, a deranged stranger, sure. um, you know, with long black hair. And that's all that they needed to hear about, you know, somebody hanging around Busey's woods. We got and, you know, here's a guy with long black hair. And now suddenly, um, suddenly here is, um, you know, a skull near the woods with long black hair. Oh, it must have been him. Let's just forget it. Sure. And which is essentially exactly what happened. Um, I don't think there's any, I don't think there's much of a question that this guy committed these crimes. I mean, he was seen in the area when they occurred. I know that's loose and I know that's pretty circumstantial. And if I was arguing the other direction, I would be going, oh, you can't prove anything from that. But I'm not. (laughs) In this case, I I think this guy probably did commit these as well. Well, somebody did in the woods and I'm pretty sure it was him. And you just want to believe that there's only one of these monsters out there and not multiple of them. So yeah, like, no yeah, let's assume that, uh, yeah, this happened. So, uh, he gets arrested for the murder of his, was his great niece? Yes. Uh, Georgiana, Georgiana. Yeah. Georgiana yeah. Lovering. Yes. Lovering. Interesting name. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So he's arrested. He denies everything, but he has like, like no alibi. Like we talked about, he just doesn't seem to care is he yeah, invincible I mean, or does he does not care i don't know you know he um i mean there it, it was like there couldn't have been anyone else yeah i mean it's like he didn't it didn't even like make an effort really i mean a half-assed effort i'm gonna go i'm doing some chores down at this guy's farm down the road and the guy's like yeah i haven't seen him in like a week yeah you know and he goes it follows this girl into the woods like 30 minutes after she leaves home i mean seriously i mean what more of a you know what what more of a clue do you need that you've got the right guy here right you know well, it's the, the um, thing too look at this is and i'm not a psychologist or anything so no, I, no, I would need somebody to help me kind of define this but he's he premeditated the hell out of this so he's yep. not just crazy acting on whim he knows what he's doing right and and when he got caught he even admitted you know when he asked him what the what they asked him what the traps were the snares were for yeah and he said I, you know i wanted to trap her and it worked yeah i mean he just enticed her out in the woods to show her how these partridge traps work yeah and um and then sent her back out there and then followed her out there and you know so he has some notion of you know, premeditation and, and yeah 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 the, what I do now affects the future, but for some reason, eh, there's other wires that are not going on. Uh, so <laughs> it is very interesting. It's infuriating, but it is it is interesting. Yeah. Um, ends up taking the cops into the woods late on Halloween. And uh, you mentioned that he tore out her uterus. Wasn't that also like a Jack the Ripper kind of thing? I think that he yeah, um, too, yeah. I think, other I mean, people he removed some. I mean, lots of killers have. Yeah. I mean, when we're t- you know, but you when you think of the 19th century and you think of murders who rip people apart, you Jack the Ripper obviously pops up. But I mean, <laughs> that was you know a good 15, 16 years later. But you know, and I'm sure it's not the same guy because he was hanged by then. But um, I think any, I think that. Well, again, it's it's one of those weird things. Knowledge of anatomy for people at that time was uh-huh. thin sure. um, because, you know, it wasn't until like the 1850s that in the United States that a lot of laws were passed that made it possible for medical schools to actually operate on human bodies. And even then, it was greatly frowned upon. You know, you had to have, it could only be like convicted murderers and things. And so mm. any twisted nutcase with an interest in hey i wonder what's inside that bag of meat you know was suddenly ripping out uteruses and kidneys and hearts and you know and and 
out of curiosity. I mean, that sounds disgusting. I know and I'm not making light of it. Right. At all. Um, I mean, it's a horrendous story and a, and a, just a really sick, depraved person. But mm-hmm. um, I, that my, my guess would be is that, you know, he was even admitted it that with that first little girl that he, that he was curious to see what was inside. Right. You know, and that was in 1850. So, yeah. And, I, and I'm sure he was the type of kid that took apart cats to see how, oh, you worked. know it. You know, you know? he was. Yeah. yeah. You know, all the neighborhood pets that went missing. <laughs> I mean, that's assuming this guy even had a neighborhood. But see, yeah. we don't know. We don't really know much about his history, not especially his growing up where he was from. I, I don't know any of those things. I haven't been able to find it. Right. I find any of that stuff. And so, you know, we don't know what, I mean, although you have, as we're sitting here talking about this, you know, this is like turning in my mind. Yeah, what can yeah, I do yeah. with this story? You know, I mean, should I, how do I dig deeper into this? And a few other people that are just as depraved, you know? Right. Um, I mean, look for young women found in rural exactly. areas like Well, that yeah, because I mean, that was, I mean, I first wrote about this long before I ever wrote about Velisca. So, mm-hmm. uh, and that's, that's literally what I did with that is start looking for identical axe murders, you know, uh, so. if we're going to have a whole season about this now. I just... No, 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 no. I promise not to do that. I promise not to do that to you. Well, luckily, um, he's caught, goes to trial. Well, didn't really confess to a lot of things, but confessed to two murders enough. Yeah. Enough. Yeah. yeah enough. enough. The, the little girl in the beginning, he confessed to, and he claimed that he didn't have anything to do with Laura Libby's murder, but he was seen in the area. And since her death was almost identical to Isabella's, mm-hmm. um, his attorney or the, the, the attorney of the man who was blamed Pillsbury um, yep. really did believe Ooh. that he did it. He was, con- <laughs> yeah, Sorry, he was convinced. He was convinced that Evans had done it. So, right. um, oh, yeah, and, you know, we'll kinda, never know for sure, but I would be willing to agree with well, him. Pillsbury seemed also instrumental in kind of helping police connect dots and yeah, stuff. Yeah, he was. was well, you know? and, and here was a guy who had absolutely no reason to continue with this case. Right. Well, just to avenge his, client his client was dead. His client yeah. had been convicted. He spent the entire time that his client was alive trying to get him out of prison. And then even when he died, he kept on with this case. I mean, this is years later. This is like a dozen, this is a decade later, and he's still trying to connect the dots here and and to help the police do it. And he was convinced. And I mean, talk about a guy who's close to it, a lot further away than we are. And we believe that he did it. But imagine how he must have felt. Sure. Yeah, I'm sure it was infuriating. Um, But eventually his corpse is donated to Dartmouth Medical College to be dissected by students for, you know, examination Uh and teaching things. So it's, it's irony. It's poetic justice. I don't know. It's perfect, though. Yeah um cam okay let's talk a little bit about these ghost stories can can you walk me through the whole henry johnson brent thing in the book and a a little bit i I think i kind of understand but i was well yeah it's a little bit confusing because he had this entire book that he had written okay so the idea was okay so he had friends who were who lived near Busey's woods. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he was actually there visiting his friends at the time of the murders. Okay. So he didn't during see all anything. the shit show. Yes. He okay. didn't see anything. Didn't know anything. He actually became uh, a suspect for a very short amount of time because 
uh, someone reported seeing a man with a knife and a gun mm -hmm. in the woods. And it was him because he, he liked to, he, most people carried a gun at the time. Okay. Especially if we're going to go out in the woods. Sure. Uh, but he said that he also liked to target shoot, which was fine. But the main thing like with the knife is that he had his sketchbooks and things with him. He was an artist and he would go out and draw and sketch. So that's how he sharpened his pencils. So uh, okay. all of that was clear. So he was off the hook with that. So he didn't become a suspect, but it always bothered him that he had been there and when it had happened and yet didn't see anything. Uh, well, so one night while he was there um, and I didn't put the entire it, it gets it's pretty confusing as to who's who. So mm -hmm. I only put part of the story in there and just to get the gist of it. Okay. So you kind of knew what was happening. But he was at his friend's home and his friend had gone into Boston and he was there in the evening. And usually in the evenings, they would have a glass of wine, sit out on the back patio and smoke cigars. So he was sitting out there just kind of relaxing, waiting for his friend to get back. He and his friend, he said, you know, commenting about his friend he had a habit of running late. And so his, it was after dark. And he saw a man coming toward him from Busey's Woods, and he thought it was his friend. So he called out, and whoever this was didn't answer, but kept coming closer. And then I described what he saw. Right. And he had seen this man uh, who had this kind of a, a, a grayish shape, but no features, and that he believed that it was a and and the reason why and this seems like a really a big stretch how do how do you think it was the dead kid's dad looking for justice well the reason for that is because there had been a lot of stories you remember this is still in an era when spiritualism was a hot thing mm -hmm. and there had been this was and this was big news i mean this was front page news all over Boston. Mm -hmm. And so every seance and things that were going on, there were lots of reports about how the father of the Joyce children was showing up at seances and trying to give information to the police to catch this man. So with all of that said, and he does include that information in his book, but with all of those stories going around about the seances and the reports from the ghost and things that the ghost wanted, he then assumed that that's who it was. And that's how he put two and two together. Got it. But essentially the book is, is really a true crime book kind of mixed with the ghost stuff. I mean, yeah. he talks about the seances, he talks about other sightings and talks about his own encounter, which is what spurred him to write the book. And the idea was that by the time the book came out, you know, the trail had already gone cold. So Brent, his idea, and he was really well known. I mean, he was an editor of Knickerbocker, which was a big magazine in New York at the time. Mm -hmm. And so his, his idea was to put this book out and kind of get people interested in it again. And it took a while to get out, but even then it never been solved. So it felt he felt that it was an important book to put out. And having the ghost stuff in it too um, was what got him interested in it. So he included it, but unfortunately a lot of people kind of took him to task about that and didn't consider it a serious true crime book because it had the ghost story in it. Interesting. So would it be like if I like started writing a book now about John Benet Ramsey and included ghost stuff yes. in it or something? Yes. Yeah. Or okay. anybody who did. Well, believe me, since that's the majority of the books I write, no one takes me seriously. So, <laughs> you know, all you have to do is mention that you have goats in your book. Oh, I mean, ghosts. Oh, no, we're not interested. Uh, um, if only it had been goats. Anyway, um, yeah, it's and so nobody took it seriously in the 1860s either. But still. got it. 
Uh, but it's an interesting, it's interesting because he, you know, this is again, this is a guy who's really well respected with no interest in ghosts, mm -hmm. no interest, no knowledge of spiritualism, only what he was hearing secondhand from people. But then he had an experience that is what triggered him to write this book. Right. Okay. So okay. it's it's worth taking serious, I think, because yeah. you know, this is a guy not a believer, not not even with an interest in it, you know. Right. And yet this is what got him interested. So yeah, it's kind of cool. No, I get it. Yeah. Anytime, you know, especially like if a skeptic or something's like, you know what? Saw something crazy, can't explain it. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. That's interesting. Uh, all right. Well, I wanted to give a couple of shout outs to our new uh, subscribers on Patreon. Thank you so much for supporting the show to Philip and Janice or Janice. I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it, um, but thank you so much for supporting the show. Yeah. We've been getting a lot of those coming in. Um, we, we've really seen an uptick and we really appreciate that because it does really help things out, uh, especially since we committed to to the other podcasts. Well, so, yeah, so we have two we're podcasts. doing two podcasts. We're really, uh, really grateful for you guys uh the way that you've you've come to um patreon the way that you have because um while we both enjoy it i think i can speak for cody and say that we both enjoy doing sure. that podcast very much um it's also a, a, some extra work for both of us for well, both I, of us really. i did want to commend you on your uh character work voice acting i don't know <laughs> for this latest one um, yeah the episode that came out on the 21st yeah i really yes, put yeah. some I did a lot of voices for that you one. Did. And, and the hard part is keeping it straight. Yeah. I'm Whose sure, voices sure. were what? <laughs> yes. Yes. You did yeah. some takes and retakes and retries. I did. And um, I did. Yeah, I, uh, it was beautiful. I, I had to remember who was talking like what. And um, yeah, that was fun though. Yeah. That's why I didn't give you a ton of uh, of of sound effects. I appreciate it. So. I appreciate it so much. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, but yeah. So yeah, Patreon, uh, American Hauntings dot or no, I'm sorry, Patreon.com slash American Hauntings. Yes. Is our uh, Patreon page. If you're interested in, you know, not only all the other stuff that we offer with it, but also uh, in the uh, the extra podcasts that we do, because uh, I've already got. Uh, the next season of that planned. It's not written yet, but it is planned. So we uh, just finished. We're a little over halfway through the Moonlight Murder episode mm -hmm. or season, I guess. If you want to call it a season, I don't yes. know. I don't want to get confused. So our next story. We'll come up with a murder. Word. I don't know. Something. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, it is now time for our Ghostwriter segment. So if you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. This email comes to us from Nikki. It is titled The Coal Mine Episode. It says, uh, first, I really enjoy listening to your podcast. I listen to it on my night shifts at a coal mine in Wyoming. Yikes. <laughs> the mining has become incredibly safe over the years. I've worked at an open pit mine for 20 years now, and I've only had one fatality at our company in that time. Just thought I'd reach out and let you know that not all mines are bad. I still really enjoy listening to you guys and plan on keeping it that way. Um, yeah, It also I, helps I, that they're not all tunnels underground. Sure. An and open I, pit mine is seems like it would be safer to me. I, and I, I mean, think they do more of that now. I dude, guess. Fuck, I don't know. I'm still not going down in one, but I know um, it's all scary to me. But so. I definitely. Yeah. I mean, um, and I hope that didn't come across that we still think things are unsafe. It's just back then shit was really. Oh, unsafe. yeah, definitely unsafe. Um, I'm sure there have been. Yeah, what tons, what tons job wasn't? 
right. in a big industry back then. And especially so, we even mill work, about, you know, we, we even talked about like, yeah, mining was probably the most unsafe job back then. But um, I'm glad to hear you ha- that things are safe and uh, that you're making some money and that you're hearing us underground or wherever yeah. you are. Like, that's yeah, that's awesome. And well, Cody, Cody, it's not like she needs an antenna. God, you sound like me now. No. You can hear us underground. All oh, your radios tuned in. You sometimes can phones can, <laughs> sometimes phones can be finicky. All right, right? all right. Well, okay. you download those. I don't now let me show. I'll, I'll show you how it works. Oh, Next time I'll you show me your phone and I'll show you how it works. Great. Will you just edit this episode for me too? Fuck. <laughs> oh, uh, we'll edit. But uh, Nikki, yeah, I hope you stay safe and thank you for listening to this episode. <laughs> All right. Well, yeah. Thanks again. American Hauntings Podcast at gmail.com. Troy, that's all I have. All right, man. Well, um, I think we deserve to uh, to be done. So we have conference too. coming up in a couple of days and these guys are going to hear the episode afterward. And uh, we've got a, another, we got some more episodes planned. We had a lot of stuff coming. So I got to finish the exciting. Patreon episode too for tomorrow. Oh, good. That's when tomorrow. I'm recording this. Yeah. God, okay. Just a lot going on. Yeah, I'd say so. All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for listening. Uh, as Cody has already mentioned, share us with your friends. Leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, people really slacking on that. It's been a long time since reviews. So <laughs> we don't beg we, as much anymore. We would like some more, if you don't mind, as long as they're good. Or yeah. If they're, yeah. Please. Or um, funny enough. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or funny enough. But so. also, if you, if you think you're the funny one out of your friend group and you want to leave us a one star, just don't do that. Don't, don't do it because oh, your, your friends it. will agree with you. You're not that funny. And I won't so. read it. <laughs> All right, guys. Thanks a lot. And uh, I'll let you wrap it up, man. All right. Well, this episode of the American Hauntings podcast was written by Troy Taylor and it was produced and edited and cried over by me, Cody Beck. <laughs> music for this season is performed by Packy Lundholm. And you can find more about his music and upcoming shows on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, and Facebook. You can find us on most of those places too. Plus, you can. Well, not yet, yeah, not Bandcamp. No, well, we're all, our album will come out maybe our 20, album 23 it would yeah. be like our karaoke album oh yeah you, are, <laughs> you didn't do karaoke last time though i, don't I did not do you no. do karaoke uh not really okay no. i should i don't either but. i don't want to scare people any you know i i'll leave it at this that's fine that's yeah. fine spooky books yeah um but you can subscribe to the show on itunes spotify stitcher or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcast you can find the website at americanhauntingspodcast.com for more info about the show notes photos links and we more a lot of people who listen that way like grandpa style i can't i can tell how many oh how many people visit the site oh i, I see but you don't know how many people get, actually listen because it's the same image that goes everywhere sure. yeah oh okay You're probably it. really get dirty with it Ooh, now i'm curious um okay if, yeah. oh, it doesn't matter. I was just, I just wondered. I know, but oh. now I'm curious. Um, I'm, I'm <laughs> going to change this part at the end where it says, thanks for listening. We wouldn't do the show without you. I'm just going to say That's that. That's fine. Like, okay. You know what? Fuck it. We wouldn't do the show well, without Well, we couldn't. And okay. Yeah, we just wouldn't. Maybe I yeah, should. you're right. Maybe we I probably say. don't need all that verbiage. You're right. Well, maybe I take oh. it probably. We couldn't and wouldn't do it. Um, yeah, well, that's true. Or we, we, we couldn't. We wouldn't. I don't know why we do. Yeah, something I don't, like I that. I mean, you know, okay. Why are you listening? You yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Why are you still listening up to this point? Reading a so. book or exercising <laughs> or something. But uh, yeah. Hell, yeah. Um, until next time, <laughs> goodbye. See ya. Goodbye, goodbye. So long, see you later. See you later. <laughs> that was good. That was fun. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah, that was amazing.